Welcome back to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. And guys, buckle up because this episode is going to just completely blow you away. Um, I get the opportunity to sit down with a polar explorer, adventurer, um, environmentalist, dog sled guru, (laughs) uh, and canoe guide, um, Paul Shirky. Uh, I heard about Paul because my dad was reading a book called Northland by Porter Fox. And this book is about basically retracing the border of the United States and Canada. And in the book, the author gets to the Boundary Waters area and he hires Paul as his guide. And my dad just excitedly sent me a text telling me all of this guy Paul's accomplishments, uh, which are seemingly endless, but highlights of them include uh, this thing Paul has called the Centennial Trilogy, and it's retracing the footsteps of exploration giants. So back in the 80s, Paul and his partner, Will Steger, uh, and a team set out to reach the North Pole um, following kind of retracing the footsteps of Robert Perry. And they did it without any resupply. So they did it carrying everything they need to get there the whole entire time. And if you read his account called North to the Pole, you just see it's it's them having to solve all of these problems that arise along the way and the creative ways that they do that and the way they um you know their team interacts with one another and and gets to the north pole it's incredible and as someone who has been doing this podcast for four years i've yet to talk to anyone uh, who has made it to the north pole until this episode and i was just super excited to to hear about that experience but not only that He explored the Amazon's River of Doubt and retraced Teddy Roosevelt's famous journey um, when Roosevelt, after he was president. So keep that in mind. The dude could have just retired and went off and, you know, hung out and just had coffee every morning, relaxed, you know. But instead of doing that, Roosevelt decided he was going to canoe down an uncharted river tributary of the Amazon River, um, which had previously been unexplored. So Paul went and did that. Uh, He retraced Roosevelt's footsteps in that. They camped in the same spot, saw some of the same animals. You'll hear about that. And then he followed all of that up by retracing Shackleton's route over South Georgia, over the mountains of South Georgia. That was the last stage in basically Shackleton's epic quest to get back home which took him and his crew two years um so i heard about that and i was completely blown away because the roosevelt there's a book called river of doubt about roosevelt's journey and there's a book called endurance about shackleton's journey and those are my two absolute favorite adventure books Uh, i read them probably like five or six years ago i've reread the shackleton one They are stunning accounts and they just show you what a human is possible of enduring. And to hear that Paul went in in honor of these guys and in exploration of like, what was, you know, what did these guys see? What did they feel? 
Um, what did they experience through this? Uh, the fact that he went out and actually did it is beyond impressive. Um, so when Paul said he'd do the podcast, I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be awesome. And then I talked to the guy and great dude. He's just a great guy. He's a normal guy from Minnesota, uh, super kind. And the guy can tell a story. Let me tell you that. So get ready. I'm super excited to share the podcast. Uh, let's just get right into it. This is the Like a Bigfoot podcast number 222 with the Iceman, Paul Shirky. I am just beyond honored to to talk with you. I've read up on some of the adventures that you've gone on, and uh, I am fully prepared to just sit back and listen to amazing, amazing stories from you. So thanks for coming on the show. Well, our pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, I was very, I was curious. So we'll, we'll, well, I guess we can start here. So a couple of the things that I've read that you've taken on um, relatively recently is uh, kind of reenacting, like following in the footsteps of just these two great adventurers. So, um, and I want to hear about you, you crossed South Georgia Island in like, uh, recreating kind of Shackleton's journey. And then I also read that you went down the river of doubt, which I got to say the endurance book and the river of doubt book were kind of my introduction in these giant into these giant expeditions and adventures. And they're two of my favorite books ever. No, it's great to hear. Yeah. Yeah, they're right up there. I would say, I think you pegged it because um, River of Doubt and, and Endurance certainly rank on my list as, as the um, can't, can't set down adventure books. I, I recommend to everyone if they haven't, even if they're not interested in adventure, they will be when they read either one of those books. So, yeah, oh, yeah. good choice. Yeah. And so I read that you did both of those, and I was like, we have similar tastes in books. <laughs> and yeah. just uh, what was it about those two stories that inspired you so much that you went down and you actually went and had the experience for yourself? Well, I, Chris, those, those two stories involve two people in history who have these bigger than life personalities, sort of a combination of Barman Bailey and, and, um, and the, the great God, uh, and those being, of course, Ernest Shackleton, the British explorer for whom they, uh, uh, the endurance ship is famous, and also the title of the Alfred Lansing's uh, landmark book on that epic 1914 expedition. Um, and then the River of Doubt, and I'm a huge Teddy Roosevelt fan, are by far our most adventurous president, um, and I, I just can't find get enough of uh, information about his wild, crazy career and all the adventurous things he did. So, so both of those trips, retracing Roosevelt's um, descent the, the of the River of Doubt, it was a little over 100 years ago now, and similarly uh, retracing um, Shackleton's route over kind of the epic chapter of his <laughs> two-year epic, the Endurance Expedition, um, was my way of getting up close and personal with two huge uh, towering figures in my life to try to get some idea of what was making them tick and what was going on in their minds when they were engaged in such uh, life-changing experiences at these bizarre ends of the earth. Uh, and um, it certainly 
did the job for me uh, and both both of those tracks as well as one we did earlier retracing the uh, dog sled route of robert perry to the north pole to get to get it as best i can under his skin as well and see what made him tick when he uh, completed what has gone down in history as it was one of the first endeavors to reach the top of the world, and that was, of course, back in 1909. Yeah. Well, have you have you reread the books after going out and and taking these expeditions on yourself? Well, the fun thing was not only have we reread them, but of course we had them with us, and we went page by page on <laughs> yeah. the trail, and, and with my colleagues along board, we'd read the day by day chapters. Uh, it was particularly fun on the um, retracing the River of Doubt because. Roosevelt, uh, of course, one of the amazing things about <clears throat> traveling that that deep, dark heart of the Amazon um, is the incredible vitality of the jungle and the rich diversity of flora and fauna. And that was a significant source of intrigue for Teddy Roosevelt as well. So he kept a life list on that trip of all the critters he saw. And so we had fun. Part of our intrigue in reading page by page his diary on as we descended the river and found the same waypoints that he references in his diary was keeping our own little life list of critters to see how we'd match up. (laughs) How'd you guys do? How'd you guys do? It extremely well. We did damn well. In fact, uh, (laughs) we couldn't believe it. You know, here a hundred years later with all the concern about the damage and destruction of the Amazon. And yet that corner was remarkably pristine and untouched. And we in fact matched Roosevelt's life list of critters he saw along the route uh, <clears throat> to the T. And in fact, um, we're one up on him because of all the critters he was destined, determined to find in his journey through the Amazon. He was frantic to see a jaguar. And uh, poor guy, a sighting with jaguar evaded him throughout his three months down there. But <laughs> amazingly, on day one, the day that we crashed our way through the jungle to find the headwaters of the River of Doubt, we were visited that very night by a jaguar. That's kind of our send off party. Whoa. So we, uh, we got one up on him right from the get-go. Oh, my uh, gosh. I don't know if that's one that I would want to get one up on him with, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, the other one, uh, the other thing we shared with his life list is he was also both Roosevelt and ourselves, myself and my colleague, uh, Dave Freeman. Uh, Dave and I were determined to see a, a, a green sloth, um, three-toed green sloth, um, somewhere on that journey because they're they're found throughout the jungle down there, but they are so extremely well camouflaged and live up in the high canopy, you know, 150 feet above you in the very thick mass of, of, uh, of fronds in the jungle that they're almost impossible to see. And indeed they, they are neither, neither our, our group nor Roosevelt ever spotted a three-toed sloth, no matter how hard we, we all tried. So, so we all missed on that one, but we're, but we, we got them on the Jaguar. But yeah. everything else, from the electric eels to the freshwater skates to uh, tapirs and caimans, everything he saw, we, we found as well, and almost always in the same places, even. So that was, it was really striking. It really underscored how that little corner of the Amazon, despite, despite the heartbreaking, heartbreaking damage going on elsewhere in the Amazon with the fires and just wanton destruction of the rainforest, nonetheless, in that corner in the northwest uh, southwest corner of the amazon near the uh, bolivian border uh the jungle remains uh, very much as it was when roosevelt first visited it 100 years ago wow that's so that's so incredible well that that adventure like when i was reading up on you that adventure seemed yeah. to kind of stick out 
um, because it's, yeah. it seems like the rest of them are in these really cold places in the world. <laughs> and you, in fact, you've been called the Iceman. And I was just curious, like, how did the Iceman handle the Amazon rainforest? Well, uh, I don't do heat very well, but uh, <laughs> fortunately for us, we caught a little odd uh, blip on the screen with the year we chose. Um, we were down in the Amazon five years ago now. Um, on that particular, I've been down in the Amazon on other trips, but that particular one, uh, we hit a, we pegged the season when it was, uh, the, the weather was unusually moderate. And amazingly, we never saw a drop of rain. We were down there in the springtime. Um, and uh, lucky us, there was rain is the key concern in the Amazon because if you catch a squall, those rivers can rise dozens of feet overnight and turn a placid <clears throat> little canoe out into a raging torrent of whitewater destruction, but never happened, never happened for us. And I don't know that we ever even hit 90 degrees. We, I'm sure we had some eighties maybe, Yeah. but uh, it was remarkably pleasant temperatures, nothing that we wouldn't even see here in Minnesota on a, on a warmish summer. So, so luck of the draw, we, we hit, we pegged them. Timing of that trip spot on to accommodate our taste and, and temperature. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I was going to say that could get pretty humid and pretty, pretty hot right away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I want to hear about South Georgia Island, too, because whenever I talk to my my kids and they're like, Dad, where's the one place in the like we're, whenever we look at a globe. Right. And you mm-hmm. you're talking to them and they're like, where do you want to go out of everywhere in the world? My answer always yeah. is South Georgia Island. Um, so much in fact that my daughter, when she was like four, she thought that meant we were going like the next week. So we walked into her daycare (laughs) and she goes, I'm going to South Georgia. I'm going to Antarctica. And I'm like, her, her daycare teachers are going to be very confused. (laughs) Um, so I want to ask like the route Shackleton took, is that how many people have reenacted that route? Is that something that is is quite common, or is that kind of a rare occurrence? So um, it is not common. It wasn't common at the time we did it, which is what, no, that was back 2012 or 13, I think, when we were in South Georgia. Uh, there had been, I think, a handful of folks, I think with the British Marines, maybe they had, they had a team down there sometime before us. Um, for better or worse, we sort of opened the floodgates because we did it and we did it in style and it went well and, <laughs> and uh, garnered some attention. And so other extreme adventure travel groups have gone down since to reconnoiter um, uh, uh, the same trail we did. Um, and I, I, it, it, it's, uh, it's not getting hammered by any means. There might be a group coming through every other uh, Antarctic summer to give that trail a goal. But um, it, uh, much like what we experienced at the River of Doubt, experiencing South Georgia and having Shackleton's um, writings with us and having his hand-drawn map of the route with us that we wow. followed as well. Uh, of course, it's in a polar environment and it's not, not, uh, not vulnerable to too much in human impact or change. And, and indeed, what we experienced and saw at Witness there was identical to what Shackleton recorded in his diaries from that same trip uh, 100 years before. Wow. That's, I mean, when I think about Shackleton, and first of all, I'm like, 
never name your boat endurance it's just it's a bad <laughs> omen <laughs> like because what they went through <laughs> what they yeah. went through was like the definition of endurance and enduring and really i mean it's so it's just such a heroic story that you yeah. you're just imagining being that far away from any civilization whatsoever and basically having to rely on leadership to get yourself out of that situation and he, the fact that he got every single person on his crew uh, back mm -hmm. was is just a miracle and I don't know about you but the part in the book that that really I could not put down is I believe when Shackleton and like a group I think of six people are like rowing the boat or whatever to South Georgia and they're just getting yeah. soaked and it just the, the description sounds absolutely miserable um, mm. so can you speak to once they got there and they had to, then mm -hmm. they were on the wrong side of the island, of course, because, mm -hmm. and they had to uh, traverse the island. How difficult is that route? And how much, how, how did that feel doing that, knowing that this man did it with his, with his group of people after two years of complete survival? Yeah. Well, we can't hold, we can't hold a candle to what they did because we, <laughs> These routes are well-defined and mapped and charted and photographed inside and out, left, right, and center now. But yeah. back then, for both, for both, well, for both Teddy Roosevelt on the River of Doubt and for Shackleton at South Georgia, they had no idea, no clue what, what they were about to endure. Um, Roosevelt heading down that river from its headwaters, at, and no one at the time had any idea where that river went, how far it was, what kind of terrain it went through, how horrific the rapids were, and most significantly, how... Uh, territorial the native tribes were along that river who could of course at any whim take out roosevelt and his crew with a poisoned dart or a spear from hidden hiding behind the jungle fronds on the river shore uh, and, and there were no native tribes lurking to take out shackleton when crossing south georgia but th th that island was completely uncharted at the time it was very clear approaching it they could see it's just a hundred mile long spine of mountains <laughs> And they knew they were going to have some rather dramatic adventures um, negotiating that terrain. Uh, and, and off they went. They had a general idea what direction they had to go. And, of course, they were destined to try to seek refuge and rescue in the only point of civilization at that end of the world at the time, which was this very isolated Norwegian whaling station down on the far side and on the other end of that island. So the... For them to ascend those mountains and get into that spine and then somehow come out the other end alive and well is Herculean feat. Plus, they did it with no gear. I mean, virtually wow. nothing. There was no camping equipment, no climbing ropes, uh, no crampons. Um, I mean, they just carried a few odd bits of uh, ratty rope they pulled off the remains of their boat when they pulled ashore on the end of the island. And they, uh, what I find incredibly creative and uh, uh, and inspiring is knowing that they were going to be clambering over ice caps and glaciers and, and um, ice encrusted mountaintops with no crampons. They extracted the brass screws from the, the hull of their little lifeboat and uh, <clears throat> affixed them to the bottom of their busted out boots to make these makeshift crampons to safely in, engage in, in uh, climbing these mountains. And, and it worked. 
It worked. <laughs> and, uh, so very clever, very creative, and of course, life saving. Um, most most importantly for them. Yeah. Um, so and <clears throat> of course we had a huge edge on all of that because we had the pick of the litter of the nicest uh, ice axes and climbing ropes and any equipment we wanted to bring with us. And we knew full well what kind of terrain we were going to get into. However, there was one remarkable surprise for us because the um, the pivot point of the Shackleton story, and in fact, the whole 18-month epic, from having the boat scuttled in the sea ice to clambering their way to Elephant Island and then sending Shackleton taking five of his best men to attempt this rescue at the Norwegian whaling station. Um, the pivot point of the whole project for all of them was this death-defying feat of crossing what's, what's calling the Trident Peak. Uh, Shackleton could see as they began ascending South Georgia that there was a significant precipice uh, at the... Uh, highest point of the island, which he uh, called Trident Peak. Three mountain peaks come together there, and they, they watched it in, in uh, deep consternation as they climbed their way up towards the center of the island to make the crossing, not knowing what that peak would hold for them or how they could negotiate it. And in fact, when they get to the saddle at the top of the peak <clears throat> and peer over the edge, what they see is this melty abyss that drops nearly a vertical, near vertical drop a few thousand feet down into sea fog. Um, and uh, so they have no idea what's down below them. Um, they, they, it's simply too steep and they have no ropes or equipment to, to work their way down in some kind of a belay system. And they're also just wearing some very light gear. They're not, they're not prepared to spend the night out in polar darkness without any sufficient tents, no tents, no sleeping bags, nothing. Uh, so it's either do or die, make their way down this, this precipice. So for people reading the book, it all builds to this amazing moment when they, when they uh, form a human bobsled. They sit lap, lap to lap and wrap their arms each other, around each other to become a toboggan and use what's left of their shredded sailing ropes to coil and create little seats to sit on so they don't tear up their cheeks going down that, this uh, steep, icy slope into milky nothingness. They have no idea how far down it is or what they're going to land on or whether there's rock shards or pinnacles poking through that would tear them to pieces on their way by. But then with the heave hole, they shove off and off they go just careening. They're actually catching air as they're headed down this precipice, hooting and hollering with this wild adrenaline rush, <laughs> yeah. never, never knowing if they're going to live to tell the story. And then, of course, amazingly, they kind of glide to a safe halt in a snowbank at the bottom and they pulled it off. They live to tell the tale and they look up into the melty nothingness and realize that they just hit the one spot on the slide where there's a clean passage and there were no protruding rock fields or um, avalanches that might have been triggered that would have buried them forever. Um, and amazingly, we got there and we had the same scene. We got to the Trident Peak and we looked down at the melty nothingness and we had no idea what might have changed on that mountain slope in the hundred years since, whether there were noon attacks or rocket protrusions that might have appeared through the glacial shifting. It could also represent a huge threat to us. More significantly, there were cornices that we could see in the uh, milky haze, which threatened, of course, that we may well trigger an avalanche if we proceed to try to slide down that mountain slope. Um, 
But lucky us, we had among our team was a um, older fellow who was extremely experienced in mountain climbing, and he uh, pulled an old trick out of his hat that uh, he had learned from a preacher while climbing in the Wind Range in um, Wyoming, where they were also faced with an unknown slope that they needed to descend and were deeply concerned that they might uh, trigger an avalanche by upsetting a cornice on their way down. So the trick was, and maybe this is well known in mountain climbing circles. I, I, this was new and different for me, but they uh, they use a dummy a dummy uh, avalanche. What they do in uh, this our mountain climbing buddy on that trip way back when in the Wind River Range, his his colleague um, took a, a backpack, a non-essential backpack with some extra emergency gear in it that they were wasn't life uh, dependent on and. So they uh, attached it to a rope and pitched the backpack down the mountainside <laughs> and it created enough of a shadow profile that they could see it drop, 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 drop. And of course, on the way down, it's also alerting them if there's any cornices that its own um, impact might, might trigger. And um, despite the milky haze, they could still make out the shadow line of the dark colored pack against the snowfield at the bottom, which gave them a clean line on which to make a safe descent. So we did something similar we didn't sacrifice a backpack, but instead, uh, the mountain saddle at the Trident Peak was thickly crusted with compacted snow and ice. So using our our uh, ice saws and and axes, we we extracted a, a, a six foot diameter, two foot wide snow wheel out of the crust at the peak of the mountain. So we sawed a big circle in the snow. Then we used some cables from our pulks to, to um, uh, scissor it loose from its moorings. Um, and with a big heave hole, we all rolled it up on its side like uh, the giant wheel from <coughs> Stonehenge times uh, <laughs> and uh, then gave it a shove off the edge and this huge six-foot diameter rock-hard ice snow wheel went careening down the, that 2,000-plus-foot precipice and much like the backpack would have done, as it, um, we could, we could, it, it created a very faint shadow line in the track it left in the snow that we could follow through the haze. Wow. It alerted us that there were no cornices to be triggered along that route. And it also alerted us that there were no noon, atta- noon attacks or protruding rocks that might represent a danger to us on our way down. So then uh, with a big smile and lots of laughs, we followed that, that, that uh, tracy, trace of a shadow line down is using our pick ice axes and ropes to lower ourselves to the bottom of the abyss and much like shackles and his crew landed in a gentle snowfield at the bottom and laughed ourselves silly realizing that we'd pulled it off without a problem as well <laughs> that's so that's incredible and yeah oh it was a lot of fun yeah oh i can't i just can't even it's hard to even fathom an adventure like that and for you being someone who has gone to the North Pole and, you know, and obviously I've read about your trip there where you guys, um, you know, kind of did the the first unsupported path up yeah. to the North Pole, um, which is absolutely incredible. So having done all of these various adventures, I mean, how do I put this? It's it's hard because go if going to the North Pole was your very first adventure, 
Mm, Can you even top that? You know what I mean? I'm like, (laughs) I can't even think like, and, but it seems like doing something like what you just described, which is years and years later. I mean, that is Mm -hmm. thrilling in and of itself, you know? Yeah. Well, I I feel fortunate in that these three, I mean, well, lucky me, we've had, we've had found some excuse to go on Arctic, Arctic or Antarctic adventure every year. Yeah. Since whenever, 1984 now, I guess (laughs) it's my first. Um, So, yeah. But these three that we're discussing here, North Pole by dog sled, uh, Antarctica mountaineering trek, and then um, the Amazon by canoe, the the venues, the environment, the scenery, the means of travel were so different and novel in each case that it was, I just felt so fortunate to kind of expand my repertoire of adventuring skills by doing three major treks that involved such a different template and a different context. Um, so, I, so I treasure that. It's just luck of the draw that it, that dropped into my lap and was able to put together the right sets of friends and resources and support networks to, to make it happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking about this today when I was thinking about you know, talking with you, um, there are so many, there's like an, almost an infinite number of paths you can take on in your life. Mm. And Mm -hmm. you chose this really interesting, definitely path of, (laughs) of most resistance for sure. Um, (laughs) did you, did you intentionally choose that? Like, was there a moment where you intentionally chose that or did you just kind of find your way there you know did you just yeah yeah did you figure it out along the way or did was there like a specific moment where you're like i'm an adventurer now yeah that's that's an interesting question and you know when all of us look back and kind of sift through that great game of connect the dots to see how (laughs) life led us where we where we come um some fascinating discoveries you make along the way and, and um it was an unlikely twist of fate for me because I'm a city boy. I grew up in the soft white underbelly of Minneapolis. Um, although, although timing, timing in life is, well, is, is everything so often as it was for me, because during my formative years as a rambunctious, wild, crazy uh, kid, maybe between ages eight and 11 or something, um, with all my Rammy and ramming around with all my buddies, lucky us, right outside our door in South Minneapolis was this huge expansive playground because they were just finishing the interstate highway system. So they had massive uh, infrastructure project gouging out 10 mile long deep ditch through the center of Minneapolis to create what's now 35W, the major highway system through the city. But all that took place during kind of the formative years of my childhood. So we'd spend every, when we weren't in school or obliged to be home uh, cleaning our bedroom or washing the dishes, me and my buddies would be ramrodding their way in that big ditch among all the heavy machinery <laughs> and piles of gravel and, and piles of rebar and all the supplies that they <clears throat> were inventorying there to create the interstate highway system. And that became like our big F troop uh, playground when our, in our banana seat bikes with the high rise handlebars and we'd be banging around. And then we had the jackpot at some point in the process of summer, the summer that they put the six foot diameter concrete storm drains down the center what would become this deep ditch where the four-lane divided highway would be caved in place. Uh, but that six-foot diameter storm drain runs from downtown Minneapolis all the way to the suburbs, 
And lucky ass, me and my buddies figured out it's pretty much a downhill grade all the way out there. So we would slink down down Minneapolis, and then on the fly, we'd lower our banana seat bikes into a manhole cover and then hop on them and then launch these crazy rides in complete darkness, picking up our pace as we went screaming down this six-foot diameter concrete tunnel and the only light we would see would be these little flashes where we'd pass by a manhole cover above and and you know because it was a long ride many miles would be and we'd be picking up tremendous speeds in there <laughs> and if there had been lucky us it was a clean tunnel because if there had been so much as a brick or a rebar sitting there our parents would have never known what happened to us oh. it just disappeared in the into the ether as but, as a uh, parent right now i'm freaking out but as someone who respects just childhood exploration and adventure i'm, I'm like yes yeah. this is the best <laughs> yeah well i gotta tell you i don't know if i've ever topped that since in terms of looking for adrenaline rush that was about a while as well a thing as i would ever do and i i wouldn't advise it it was probably <laughs> way too much risk but you know we're young and stupid, and risk risk doesn't risk doesn't factor into our decisions at that age. We're just hell bent for leather, and out they have fun. But it's certainly that that little odd outlier experience had a lot to do with uh, me setting my sights on adventures for the rest of my life. Because uh, I think you know, became adrenaline a junkie right then and there. Got kind of fixated on seeing how far you could push the envelope with doing wild and crazy things, and. And that little childhood experience and what otherwise would have been a pretty staid upbringing in, in the heart of a big city um, proved to me to be the path less traveled and changed <laughs> everything. When did, uh, when did the North Pole and how did the North Pole like even come on your radar? Yeah, well, that was kind of true. Yeah, back to your as well, um, because uh, those childhood experiences got me uh uh, not bothered about engaging in as many adventures as I could. And lucky me growing up here in Minnesota, for most everyone who has the least bit of, a, of an adventure bug in their bonnet, uh, that is uh, exercised with uh, trips to this mythical place called the Boundary Waters Canoe Area. We're here right outside my door where I live now here in Ely, Minnesota, is the world's uh, most, one of the largest and, and by far the most beloved and heavily visited of all the protected wilderness areas on the planet um, with its 2000 lakes, all of which are still clean enough. You can still dip a cup in and drink from them. And it's 6,000 6, miles of canoe routes. And what now for me are dog sled routes. So it's just an immense adventure wonderland. Um, so I, I, I was able to hop, be, be introduced to that growing up as I did in Southern side of the state here in Minneapolis. Nonetheless, like most Minnesotans, it was a rite, a rite of passage for me to enjoy my first Boundary Waters trip, which fell into my lap through um, our church youth group. Uh, we didn't have Boy Scouts. Instead, we had Lutheran Pioneer Boys. And the Lutheran Pioneer Boys, once you earned enough merit badges by learning how to properly fold a flag and tie a square knot and ditch your tent and, and uh, uh, sharpen your knife, then you would uh, score this uh, amazing thing called the Bondwater's Canoe Trip. None of us had any idea where it was or what it was, but it was uh, quite the allure of something to strive for. Um, and off I went. I was probably 11 or 12 when I went on my first trip. And um, it was like, for me, it was like going to the moon or something. It seemed so exotic. Uh, but I remember it as <clears throat> like it was yesterday, a moment on that trip where when I and my 
Lucent Pioneer Boy buddies all in our green Lucent Pioneer Boy shirts with our epaulets and, <laughs> and merit badges pinned all over them and our, our, green, our bright red kerchief with our little Elkhorn slider holding into place. We're all running around on a beautiful island on the um, Canadian border in the heart of the wilderness. It's sunset. There's a uh, freshly caught walleye frying on the, in the pan. Uh, Which is the greatest the food of all time. Just sorry, I had to throw that out there. <laughs> You got to throw that in here. Um, and there's a bear cub scampering on the far shore. The sun's setting and the loons are calling. And even though we were in the thick of a, uh, a game of kick the can, something seized the moment in me there. And I'm, I remember uh, looking out at the scene and soaking it in. And I have drawn from that vision. It was so impressionable on me. I, I've literally drawn from that very moment ever since. The beauty of the scene, the pristine and, um, and uh, pristine quality of the wilderness we were traveling the, the uh, ethereal silence of the place, the colors, it's all there for me to draw from. And it set me, it set my sights on finding a way to carve out a livelihood to call this place home. And we've now been here for 40 years. That's amazing. Well, and just, just to relate to that, as a kid growing up in Iowa, my dad and mom would take me up, up to Canada you know, through Northern Minnesota and we'd go fishing, uh, every summer on like a little fishing trip. And yeah. to me, that was the first introduction of like a bigger world. You know, there's more mm -hmm. out there than just what you've experienced in your hometown. And, and it is also the introduction to the wilderness. Like I was running around the woods all the time in Iowa, but then you go up there yeah. and like you said, I mean, your description was beautiful by the way, but the call of the loons and and just the the feeling that you get and the the animals that you're seeing and and all of that was something so new to me that it just mm -hmm. it's been a super formative place and formative experience and I'm so glad like every time I get to go out there so oh, I love great. that and I love yeah. that you're obviously just a great representation of the boundary waters and adventure and everything that like the North woods has to offer. No, well, thank you. Yeah. Which is, which is amazing. So what gave you the boldness to be like, I'm going to the North pole. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, that's where the coming in the back door story continues because, um, so early on after this, uh, after this pivotal experience with the Lutheran pioneer boys, you know, I set my sights on somehow some way calling this, home someday and uh, carried on through high school and college looking for that that ticket to ride that ticket that would take me back to the north woods for a complete lifestyle and it stumbled into my path in college i went to a uh, catholic university here in minnesota called saint john's and while there i know saint john's yeah 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 i know okay yeah. we we got beat by them in rugby and i just remember <laughs> <laughs> I remember being like, okay. "Oh, the Johnnies!" Yes, we are very proud of our rugby team. But, <laughs> but, um, but for me at the time, I was kind of brimming with youthful energy at St. John's, looking for an outlet for all my interests. And the outlet for me was a college organization that allowed students to become engaged in political lobbying for environmental and consumer issues. And that organization is. Uh, called MPERG. It was started by Ralph Nader, and MPERG stands for the Minnesota Public Interest Research Group. 
uh, and college campuses all over the country had their PERG chapters at the time to get kids engaged in students, college kids involved in political causes. And the hot button issue in Minnesota when I was in college way back when in the late 70s was the protection of the Boundary Waters Wilderness. There was a huge raging controversy here in Northern, well, all across the state, because local folks up here who had been motorboating and, and um, flying the, the wilderness here for generations and considered it sort of their big backyard playground, felt it was a huge unconscionable federal land grab for the feds to come in and, and say, oh, this is going to be a place of natural sights and natural sounds from now on. We're going to see no more of the bootlegging and the resorts and the motorboats and the airplanes. We're going to clean it all up and, and call it a wilderness. Well, there was tremendous grinding of the gears for many years when that went down. Um, it all eventually resolved itself, but it was a, it was a, it was a violent fight at the time. Um, and one of the issues that uh, the <laughs> folks who were opposed to establishing this as a nationally protected wilderness, one of the issues they kept bringing up, it, which which uh, I and my college friends felt was a complete um, misrepresentation and a giant red herring when it came to political causes, was the contention that if, they, if we didn't continue to allow motorboats and snowmobiles and small airplanes to travel the wilderness area, we would deny deny the enjoyment of that area to people who are disabled or elderly um and as it happened my 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 best buddy in college my beer drinking buddy at st john's has a, a disability a mild congenital disability but he was very uh in, engaged in issues concerning people who are disabled who are blind or deaf or use wheelchairs or crutches and and their rights to have access to the same sort of recreational resources that anybody should have rights to um so he felt it was a terrible pandering to suggest that people who are blind or deaf or use wheelchairs or crutches would not enjoy a wilderness adventure by experiencing wilderness on its own terms as anybody might. So as that, as that argument gained traction, we decided to call their bluff. And in 19, let me think here, 78, we, were, we put together a circle of friends who had represented people with varying mobility and sensory impairments. We had a couple of friends who were deaf, a friend who had lost his legs in Vietnam, a woman who was blind, another woman who had cerebral palsy. Uh, and then we, we were able to talk a reporter from the New York Times to joining us, and we went off on a very ambitious uh, Boundary Orders canoe trip. Uh, to, and, um, well, the trip turned out to be an epic. We got into a much more challenging route that we bargained on, and somehow, some way, we all came out of it alive and smiling. But uh, the writer from the New York Times put together a beautifully lyrical story on the whole experience that went front page in the Times, and it actually helped move the dial on the politics of the issue. But more significantly, for my college beer drinking buddy and I, we realized that this was a bucket of fun to be engaged in wilderness <laughs> experiences with these really unusual mixed groups of people coming from all these bizarre backgrounds of life, and we thought, we got to keep doing this. So... So we scored a grant to put together a program, a, little, a nonprofit wilderness adventure program called Wilderness Inquiry that uh, puts together wilderness trips, well, now all over the world for groups of all kinds that include uh, mainstreams, mainstreams for people with any kind of a sensory or mobility impairment as well. Um, and uh, so that launched us on our outdoor leadership careers. Um, 
uh, in program development careers and it sent me on my way to the North Pole because during the first several summers, uh, those trips, Wilderness Inquiry offered these Bondi Water Canoe trips and we had these amazing circles of people that come on the trips with us um, with all these wild stories about their various takes on life, especially given, given the challenges they had overcome to sort of mainstream their lives despite their many disabilities. Um, and we found ways, creative means with simple adaptive equipment, sling chairs and backpacks to accommodate people with mobility impairments, for example, and help them get across the borders and so forth. And using minor adaptive tools to ensure that even people who were quadriplegic could wield a canoe paddle in some fashion so that they could be part of the process of getting from point A to point B out there in the canoe country without feeling like they were just kind of excess baggage in the, in the canoe. Um, and it all worked really well. It worked so well. The program is, is, is thriving today. It's huge. Um, and based still here in Minnesota. But initially summer canoe trips, and it was so much fun for Greg, Lace, and I, uh, my college buddy, we wanted to this should be our day job we got to find a way to take this year round um so we wondered how we would accommodate people with disabilities in the winter wilderness setting and friends of ours suggested aha dog clubs could be the answer we didn't know a thing about dog teams <laughs> but we were told that if you want to learn about dog teams go to ely minnesota and then here in ely minnesota we were chatting it up to some folks over a beer in the bar and asked if there's anybody we might approach about borrowing or hiring a dog team to try our luck at a winter wilderness trip. And we got sent on our way with the proverbial little hand-drawn map on the back of a bar napkin to this uh, homestead deep in the wilderness, miles from the nearest road where lived this bit of a hermit who had a dog team. Dog teams is a matter of necessity to make his way back and forth to Ely for to buy beans and rice and cooking oil and other supplies. And we laid our wrap on him and asked if he'd be willing to engage with us to try an experimental trip, winter dogs at camp trip with friends who were disabled. And he was on board big time. And off we went in that winter of 79 and had another peak life experience with another circle of fanfic friends with different disabilities. And that winter in the body waters, my first big, winter camping experience we got the full monty we got the howling wolves we got the northern lights um we got 40 below we, we, we built igloos we did it all and and then really enjoyed traveling by dog teams um and then we, we knew we were onto something and i knew that i was on to a life's mission because uh, dogs and winter was was what, what it was all about for me and as it happened the fellow we hooked up with and whose dog teams we hired is a guy named Will Steger, who's sort of a household name here in Minnesota and probably went on to become one of the top ranking contemporary uh, polar adventurers and uh, still here in Ely with us. And then, of course, through that experience in back in 79, Will and I, Will Steger and I became fast friends and business partners of a sort. And then um, while our fledgling winter dog sled options for wilderness inquiry began to shape, take shape will figure in turn introduced me to his passion for the arctic and for points further north and then our arctic uh, career took shape as well at the same time then will and i and a circle of friends went on to uh, complete a landmark expedition to the north pole in 1986 um, and uh, will went from there to complete a dog said traverse of the Antarctic continent a few years later, I went another direction and teamed up with some Soviet adventurers 
to dogsled across eastern Siberia and over the Bering Strait and through western Alaska to retrace the route of uh, early Native Americans who had this amazing link between the continents, between Asia and North America up there, that had all dissolved during the dark years of the Cold War. And so we engaged in what we called an exercise in adventure diplomacy uh, to try our luck at uh, reopening the U.S.-Soviet border in the Bering Strait, given that the Native peoples that live on either side of the Bering Strait are all very close related. Many of them close blood relatives, speak the same language, share the same cultural heritage. But ever since the advent of the Cold War, back way back in the late 1930s, uh, entire communities, entire family groups have been entirely cut off from them, from each other by this bizarre abstract political divide. And so uh, our trip played a role in um, uh, correcting that massive historical lapse there. Uh, and the, um, the year after our trip, President Bush and President Mikhail Gorbachev signed a treaty that reopened the border. So it was uh, many other groups played a role in that citizen diplomacy effort, but we were really honored that our project uh, was credited as uh, being pivotal in that effort as well. That's that's incredible. I mean, I I read a bit about about that uh, kind of mission yeah. beforehand. I just I love the idea of adventure diplomacy. Um, yeah, you know, it just it's for something like that that's affecting human beings who are living up there. And for you guys to go out and like actually like intentionally seek out a way to tell their story in a way that's really going to like capture the imaginations of the general public in both countries was really, really cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very gratifying project. And, and it has lingered on all these years. I stay in close touch with my colleagues in Russia and, and in Siberia. And of course, times have changed so radically the Soviet Union no longer exists. But, but sadly, uh, strange, dark times um, have, have settled over that Bering Strait region once again. And it, yeah. it feels and appears for all the world like the Cold War is back on track again. But but there was this little moment back then in the this was late 90s, early um, late, late uh, 80s and early 90s when there was this extended bear hug embrace between um, people in Russia and people in the United States in the corner of the world where our two countries are only a few dozen miles apart. Um, and uh, Boy Scout jamborees were held on both sides of the border. There were big <laughs> dance festivals. People were flying back and forth. Huge reunions among family members that hadn't seen each other in decades. And uh, it was a beautiful thing. Um, and it's sad to see it has slid back again in these strange, dark times of Soviet American disconnect in our relations with that with that country. That's kind of the sad current foreign policy vibe that's out there. Yeah. Well, I wanted to hear real quick. Um, do you think like in, intentionally tackling adversity uh, together kind of puts people on an even even playing field? Like, do you think it, that brings people together, or do you think that can pull people apart? Hmm. Well. Um, I do know that in all the adventures we've undertaken, since we have purposely now sought out to engage adventures with people, at least in the uh, projects I've had the pleasure of being engaged with, we've always sought out teams of people that are culturally, physically, uh, maybe even spiritually different. Uh, I'm not seeking out um, the uh, circle of 
folks that I call my friends here in the little town we live in, but yet, yet I've always had the um, honor of enjoying these epic expeditions with a really mixed circle of people, especially like the Bering Bridge trip, because on that trip, a team of 12, we spoke amongst us six different languages, five different very distinct um, cultural gr- groups, cultural legacies represented among the team. And similarly, on all the hundreds of wilderness inquiry trips that I've led with people with all these uh, physical uh, differences amongst us, blind or deaf, or these wheelchairs or crutches, and, and also coming from foreign countries all over the world. Uh, what comes away, what you come away with on each and every one of those um, experiences with a diverse mix of people sharing an adventure together, there's nothing like an adventure to underscore that the things we hold in common as humans far outweigh the matters on which we differ. And so those trips have been just a bedrock foundation for me and the common humanity that adventure underscores and how emphatically that brings that to light for anyone who experiences that. So, so we're all looking to be peacemakers out there. And I found that adventuring with mixed groups has been my, my means of my preferred role as a peacemaker. Yeah, that's, that's, that's so incredible. And it's just something I personally really believe, believe in. And um, it's refreshing to hear you kind of say that because I do think it just allows you, it opens your eyes to see that our, what we hold in common is, is much more powerful than any differences that we may have, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I want to wrap up with this. So I, <laughs> I pulled a quote from you and I want to hear oh, your okay. thoughts on it. Uh, so I can't remember where I pulled the quote. I, I should have written that down. I feel bad now. Um, (laughs) But you said, um, speaking to making it to the North Pole, um, you said, our success is now the quiet voice I hear every time I face new challenges. Uh, The voice that says, yeah, you can pull this off. And I wanted to hear Mm -hmm. just your reflections on having that major accomplishment uh, so many years ago how has that played out in your future, like your successes that, that followed? Like how, how important was that and how often are you reflecting on it and thinking about it? Oh my God. It, it, it's such a huge monumental life, life gift. It's like pixie dust that floats down on me every day, <laughs> ever since. You know, I'm 65 now and that trip was 35 years ago for me. Uh, when we were young and stupid and nubile, and, and we felt absolutely like we all do at that age, completely invulnerable to anything. So we tackled stuff that's wild and crazy, and somehow we pull it off. But, <laughs> but, but having pulled it off, you know, and I, I know that uh, I, I, even at that age, I couldn't have done that trip twice. I wouldn't have done it twice if we'd known what was coming. We'd be out there with temperatures nearing 80 below zero. And, and uh, dealing with horrendous packs of shifting sea ice, which could dump us into the three, three miles down into ice Davy Jones locker at any moment. If we had a misstep out there on the ocean and well as these lurking huge white carnivores called polar bears, which are all over out there as well, looking for a bite to eat, which could well have been us. So nonetheless, we came out alive with all our digits intact and a story to tell. And, and then, and then this skill set in our back pocket, that is, tumbling around sort of um, in my subconscious day in and, and day out. And I feel it there. It's hard to pinpoint it sometimes, but I always feel it there that no matter what challenges I'm up against, 
whether it's political or or physical or even with family issues or just trying to get a motor to start here in the backyard with a foot and wood, whatever it is. Yeah. Something around in my subconscious from having tackled that big trip right back in the get-go um, is that it's always there telling me you've done things much, much bigger than this. You'll do this one too. This is, you know, almost, it almost whispers to me time and again, it says, this is small stuff. You, you tackle things so much larger than this. Don't worry about this, Adam. You'll crack the code on this readily. And so that's there for me now. And it's just a gift that I got at a, at a pivotal point in my life that I've been able to draw from ever since. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, Paul, I mean, like I said at the beginning, I'm I am even more honored now to to be able to sit down and listen to your stories. So thank you so much for for sharing some time with us today. I really appreciate it. Well, yeah. Well, I'm honored by your interest. Thanks for your podcast. Yeah, man. Yeah, I could I could listen to you talk for hours and hours probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I appreciate you spending this afternoon with me and. Uh, and uh, I'll make a point of listening to your other uh, episodes as well. I'm really, I think you did a fine job with your questions and I, I'm sure that it'll be fun to hear what else you've got posted out there. Uh, awesome. Thank you, Paul. Well, yeah, it, I, I would love to speak to you again at some point in the future. Very good. <laughs> All right. That'll do it for this week's episode. Um, seriously, one of my favorite episodes that I've, I've been able to do so far. Um, just if you read up on Paul, he's a, he's an amazing guy. Um, he has done just imagining going to the North Pole. I want you to imagine it for a second. You you basically are as far away from civilization and safety as you possibly can get, and what you have to survive that is your own wits, your own creativity your own problem-solving ability, and basically your grit and ability to just endure, right? And just thinking about that, it gets me pumped up. (laughs) It gets me so pumped up just about the human possibility, the possibilities of what someone can choose to do with their lives, you know? Like, here's the thing. You're Every single day is an open book. It's a blank slate. You have the choice of what you're going to do with that day, what things you're going to pursue, what things you're going to leave behind, you know, what things that are really going to um, require your attention and your focus. And you have that choice. You do. No one else does. And for someone like Paul to choose to go to the North Pole without a resupply and then to go do the crossing of Siberia with a big bigger cause in mind a bigger mission in mind um to go to the Amazon to go re- reenact Shackleton like here's the thing I read the Shackleton book and I was blown away and I 100% want to visit South Georgia Island never in a million years was actually doing the same exact route never did that come up on my radar until hearing about paul and now i'm like oh that's an idea (laughs) that's an idea that would be hard to shake for sure um it's amazing and i think sometimes you can hear about something that someone's done something like paul's taken on right 
that seems so far outside the norm, so far outside of the realm of possibility that can intimidate you into complete inaction uh, in your own life and your own goals because you're just like, well, that guy who went to the North Pole, who dog sledded across Siberia, you know, who paddled down the Amazon River, that guy must be a superhero. That guy must be uh, just a freak of nature, right? That's what's going through your mind. Um, But one of my favorite quotes from Jimmy Valvano, the coach of North Carolina State, NC State, uh, back in, I think, the 80s or 90s, um, is just that every single day in every walk of life, ordinary people do extraordinary things. And after I get the opportunity to sit down with Paul or sit down with people who have done, you know, some of these things that I really admire and I really look up to and I'm very impressed by, it is a reminder to me, like, every single person would have the choice to take this on. Um, doesn't mean every single person would reach the end, depending on their mindset, but but I th- I'm sure Paul would just describe himself as a normal guy. You know, and then you're like, wait a second, you're anything but normal. Like you've been to the North Pole six times, dude. But I'm sure in his mind, he's like, yeah, like if I could do it, anybody could do it. And I draw a lot of inspiration from that. And I love podcasts for the fact that you get more than just the news clip, right? You get more than just the five seconds or or two minutes of, of hearing about someone's goal. Like you actually get to dig in and kind of see parts of the story and parts of the journey and maybe even like the path that people took to get there. Um, kind of connected. I heard, I heard this this morning again, uh, it's from one of my favorite movies from like the last like eight years, uh, the Martian with Matt Damon. If you haven't seen it, it's an amazing movie. Uh, the dude gets stranded on Mars and then has to figure out a way to survive until someone can save him. Um, and the ending, this is spoiler alert, so if you haven't seen the movie, <laughs> I apologize. But uh, at the ending, he's giving a speech, and he just says, I'll do the quote. And I won't sound as good as Matt Damon, so sorry for that. But he says, at some point, everything is going to go south on you. Everything is going to go south, and you're going to say, this is it. This is how I end. Now, you can either accept that, or you can get to work. That's all it is. You just begin. You do the math. You solve one problem. Then you solve the next one. And then the next one. And if you solve enough problems, you get to come home. And I think that's probably what it feels like to take on an epic adventure. Like, if you break it down, the whole thing might seem just so completely gigantic, so completely overwhelming. But if you break it down to day by day, hour to hour, minute to minute, and you just keep solving the problems that are in front of you and you're willing to just endure any obstacles, any adversity thrown your way, that's how you accomplish anything in life, whatever your goals may be. Maybe not just the North Pole, but I, but that's how you accomplish probably getting to the North Pole. There's an abundance of problems. You figure them out. And you make it. And and I know Paul did that. And that's why I love talking to people who have that mindset. The mindset of, 
whatever you throw at me, I can figure it out. I'm, I'm flexible enough. I'm a problem solver. I can think my way to a solution. And I can also just gut it out when I need to gut it out. And I think that's super inspiring. So um, we'll wrap it there. But Paul, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. It was an absolute honor to get to interview you. Um, you're just incredible. You are definitely one of my inspirations now when it comes to adventure and just human possibility. So uh you guys can check out Paul. He's at a uh, winter green dog sled lodge in Ely, Minnesota. Um, you can check out all their stuff there. Uh, he told me before we did the podcast um, that the Today Show was staying at their lodge, um, filming a segment in Ely about the just uh, community's economy and a national story just about the threat of copper mining near the boundary waters. Um, so they kind of hosted them. So that should be coming up too at some point. Hopefully I can watch that segment and I'll share it on our uh, social media pages and stuff like that. So that's where you can find Paul. Um, but yeah, hope you guys enjoy the show as much as I did. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. It's really meant a lot to have so much support uh, as this little project of mine has kind of grown throughout the years. So thank you. Uh, appreciate it. And we'll see you guys next week.